Seminar Sessions, the podcast where three philosophers sit down at the end of a long conference day to chop it up at the hotel bar, which, as we all know, is where the real philosophy happens. All right, listeners, welcome back to Hotel Bar Sessions. I am one of your hosts, Lee Johnson, and I'm joined here by my two co-hosts, Rick Lee. Say hey, Rick. Hey, Rick. <laughs> and Charles Peterson. Hey, hey, what's up? And before we get started, like we normally do, I want to get everybody's drink orders and find out what you're ranting and raving about this week. So, Rick, let's start with you. What's your drink order and what are you ranting and raving about this week? So I'm keeping up with the theme from last week, and I just ordered a French 75. Very nice summer drink, and it's also good for day drinking. My rant is about the stupid media coverage of our mayor, Lori Lightfoot. I don't know if y'all know this, but she's a racist. And she's a racist because to celebrate her midterm, she announced she was only going to give interviews to reporters of color. So the media coverage is now almost universally calling her a racist. Is that, wait, no, is, is that not technically reverse racism? Now, let's get the bad faith arguments together. Let's get them straight. Right. Like if we're going to make shit arguments, let's at least name them correctly. Exactly. Well, but, but isn't it interesting that I think in right wing rhetoric these days, reverse racism is now just being called racism. Yeah, that's it. The, the bigger crime is not the racism itself, but acknowledging and naming Naming the racism makes you a far worse person. Isn't that fun? The upside, when everyone's a racist, no one's a racist. That's right. <laughs> we are now post-racist. We are oh, a post-racist society because everyone hates one another. My rave is small breweries. Last night, I met a colleague at Dovetail Brewery here in Chicago. They had probably 20 of their beers on tap, and it's a lot of fun to drink in the brewery. There are a lot of breweries now all around the world, the small breweries that are making some really, really delicious beer. Here, here to that. All right, Charles, what about you? In honor of the season, I'm going to order a hurricane, and I'm going to get my rant on, and my rant is the Supreme Court. <laughs> And their Ugh. clear desire to turn black people into time travelers and move us back to 1953. You know, this decision to further gut Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act to peel away every single gain in the expansion of freedom and the access to the ballot that have been developed since the mid-20th century. The crisis of legitimacy for the society is just, it's steamrolling. So that's my rant. My rave is... The old school stand-up propeller fan. Oh, yeah. It's summertime. Ooh. So my house does not have air conditioning. And as I've said previously, my mortal enemy, my nemesis, is humidity. So I have not been getting any sleep whatsoever. And I finally broke down and went to Lowe's and said, I'm going to buy one of the stand-up fans. I had to assemble it, put it together, set it literally right next to our bed, and I have been sleeping the sleep of the dead. Nice. <laughs> Not just nice. because of being cooled off at night, but I realize the sound of the propeller, uh, that's white noise. Yeah. So I am completely on board with the old school propeller fan. Get one, kids. It'll change your life. <laughs> <laughs> Lee, what's your drink order? 
So today I am having a Sam Adams Summer Ale, which finally just became available in my grocery store. I have a little bit of a backstory about the Sam Adams Summer, which is that in the last three months that I was writing my dissertation, I think I was drinking a case of Sam Adams Summer per day, and I and I was very very close to including Sam Adams Summer Ale in my acknowledgments to my dissertation <laughs> because it would not have been written. But I do love a summer ale. And if anyone from the Sam Adams organization happens to be listening, we're open to a sponsorship. We are one hundred percent open to a sponsorship. Just send us your spec sheet, and we will quickly reply with a counteroffer. And we will accept payment in, in obviously, in Sam, Sam Summer Hill. We'll just, <laughs> you know, it'll be seasonal currency. Okay. So my rant this week is insurance. Those goddamn robber barons. Like, it is the worst. So as it turns out, I have to have cataract surgery, but obviously insurance only pays for medically necessary surgery, which in the case of cataracts means that they will pay to have your cataracts removed. But when they remove your cataracts, obviously they have to put another lens in and all insurance will pay for is either a lens that can see far away or a lens that can see up close, which means that you will definitely need glasses after cataract surgery if you get the basic surgery that is paid for by insurance. But I don't wear glasses now. I've never worn glasses. I don't want to wear glasses for the rest of my life. But anything that would be a lens that actually allowed me to see both far away and up close would be elective surgery. Yeah. So big middle finger to insurance companies for <laughs> how they define what is medically necessary. However, this is on the same theme. My rave for this week is advances in medical technology. <laughs> because after a long conversation with my partner, Cassandra, we decided that we're just going to shell out the money and I am about to get two new bionic eyes. Let me put two big asterisks around the fact that this is going to cost me about three months salary. Uh, wow. But I am going to get brand new eyes that are perfect. They're going to take out the cataracts. They're going to put in multifocal lenses. I will probably see even better than when I was a kid, but the low, low price of eight grand, right? So yeah, my rant and rave are connected, but I am super excited sure. about getting bionic eyes. So are you going to be a cyborg? Are, will you technically be a cyborg? I've been debating an insulin pump for many years, and I'm pretty sure after I get my bionic eyes, I'm just going to go fully transhuman. So. There you go. I right, will be well, a cyborg at that point. <laughs> all right. Look, I always felt like you were like a whole other level of evolution anyway. And, and now you've got some graphic proof of that. I see you. <laughs> okay, so let's jump into today's episode. I am actually super excited about today's episode because today's episode is on laughter and comedy. And Rick is back in the hot seat today. So Rick, why don't you give us a kind of insight into what we're going to be talking about today and get us going. I think it might be helpful for me to approach this kind of biographically. So I've been asked to teach, and I've been doing it for a number of years, a class we have for our theater school called Dramatic Theory, colon, Comedy. There's another class 
dramatic theory colon tragedy. And at some point, maybe we'll get to why I so hate thinking of comedy as the opposite of tragedy or in any way related to tragedy, but that's down the road. And so after teaching this, and I teach in this Aristotle, Hegel, Freud's jokes and their relation to the unconscious, and Bergson has a a little essay called On Laughter. So I developed a theory that comedy is the only possible form of social critique left to us. This is almost just straight up Hegel's position, because one of the interesting things Hegel says is that to laughter, there is no negation. If someone says something that is obviously false, notice how powerless it is to say, but that's not true. And it really doesn't amount to anything. And Hegel's argument is that the benefit of comedy, which, by the way, for him, is the culmination of art as such. So comedy brings art to its fulfillment, and it's the, the completest form of art. So the benefit of comedy is that it doesn't get into an argument. There's no arguing with laughter. And so that's kind of how I developed my idea of comedy as the only form of social critique. And then I started watching Trump rallies, and I saw that the audiences were laughing a good deal of the time. It really is remarkable how much the audience at his rallies are laughing. And so then I thought to myself, well, there goes my argument that comedy is the only form of social critique. So now I'm in the process of realizing, no, I was still right. It's just that I'm the butt of the joke now. Totally. Um, Totally. Yeah. and, And so I'm just really interested in the kind of work that laughter can do both positive and negative. And yeah, and a a part of this is I have a theory of comedy that there is no theory of comedy. So for every theory of comedy you come up with, I can come up with a counterexample. Sure. So that's also part of this. Can I just jump in and say that I do want to shout out to our friend Georg Wilhelm Dietrich Hegel because that dude was hilarious. Yeah. I mean, the night in which all cows are black, that shit is hilarious. Yeah. Right. And and that also like flip side of that, it shows how rare it is for philosophers to in their works have a sense of humor. Sure. Nietzsche's funny. Derrida's funny. Yeah. The Socrates of Plato's dialogues is, you know, funny in a way. But otherwise, like, we're all just so fucking boring all the time. Charles Mills is funny. Oh, yeah. He's hilarious. He actually is quite funny. He's got a great essay about interracial dating. Do black men have a moral duty to marry black women? That title is funny. Oh, wait, wait. Here's what he's got this list of arguments. Right within the essay. <laughs> and the, the argument that makes me laugh the hardest is the questionable racial motivations argument, which is maybe you can fool that stupid white B inward, and maybe you can fool yourself, but you're not fooling anybody else argument. I'm like, yo. <laughs> <laughs> how does how does a philosopher get away with that? Tenure. Tenure. Yeah. Yeah. Tenure. <laughs> Full professorship. <laughs> I, mean, I do have to say, I've tried to introduce my own voice into my writing, but only post-tenure. And, you know, my own voice tends to engage everything first through laughter. Well, that's what I was going to actually ask both of you, because I know both of you personally, but I don't think that I've ever sat in either of your classes. My guess, in my imagination, you're probably hilarious professors. 
I mean, I could be wrong about this, but I'm 100% not. I am a hilarious professor. Like, but, I, but, I use, but I like constantly use humor in the classroom because it both has the effect of encouraging people to let down their walls, right? But also making a point that might otherwise be uncomfortable accessible. Now you're going to see the main problem I have when I teach the philosophy of comedy is that it's like learning about life through killing a frog and dissecting it, right? So at the end, right. it's, no, it's no longer <laughs> yeah. alive. But you learned a whole lot. Freud wrote about comedy in general, we could say twice. He's got an earlier book called Jokes and Their Relation to the Unconscious, and then he has a fairly late essay called On Humor. And in the first one, one of his main arguments is that comedy, like dreams, does psychic work for us, and right. it does different psychic work whether you're the joke maker, the butt of the joke, or he calls it the object usually, or for him, there's always an audience involved. And so different psychic work is going on. But one of the ways in which for him comedy can do this work is because it gets in before our sensors can come up. Like you hear what otherwise, if you heard it as an argument, you'd be like, no, wait a second. No, that, that can't be true. Or you can't say that. That's inappropriate or something. And so, Lee, I think you're right. This is what makes humor a really successful teaching strategy is that it does get in before the sensor wall can come up and, and say, no, that I can't deal with that. There's this old statement that I heard years ago that he who teaches without laughter doesn't teach at all. So I've always kept that in mind as I taught because it's a great way to get students to loosen up and make them more receptive, I think, to what you're saying. It's hard not to pay attention to somebody who's making you laugh if you're successful at it. So that's the first thing. The second thing is, for myself, it keeps me engaged. To some degree, and I kind of hope none of my students hear me say this, to some degree I'm entertaining myself as I'm teaching and instructing them. And I think when you're teaching philosophy, or I teach Africana studies, and there are a lot of really heavy topics, it removes some of the emotional tension and pressure. I mean, I'm not making slavery jokes, but there is slave humor. And so to get students to realize that we're talking about fully rounded, complex historical subjects who in the midst of this terrible existence are also able to find ways to stimulate themselves emotionally and as well as intellectually, because I think that's what makes laughter amazing. It's this simultaneous expression of being hit in one's emotional and intellectual centers simultaneously. Okay, so I have two questions in response to that, Charles. One is, do you not make slavery jokes? Uh, because I don't make jokes about the enslaved. I try to make jokes from the perspective of the enslaved. Right. I mean, I'm just thinking, sorry to go back to my favorite comedian, Hegel. Uh, <laughs> but Hegel has this really famous quote, which is, no man is a hero to his valet, right. not because he's not a hero, but because the valet is a valet. That's a joke about slavery. Right. And I think that it is so effective because it is presented in this humorous way. I'm, I'm just also thinking about in my own classes that I frequently make jokes about sexism, about right. anti-LGBTQ humor, and often just to make sure that everybody understands that it's a joke, I'll put myself at the butt of it. Sure. But I do think that there's something illuminated in the joke 
I mean, I think this is what Rick is saying, that cannot be communicated in propositional form. Right. No, I agree. So now that I hear what you're saying, yes, I make jokes about the institution of slavery. And I also think in terms of the psychic work it does, like for me, there's an emotional tension dealing with these texts, going through archives, reading about experiences that I need the joke to alleviate a certain amount of pressure for myself as I have to be a conduit for this information for students. So the joke serves a pedagogical purpose, but the joke also serves for me and hopefully for the students, as Rick says, the psychic work of what the joke and what eliciting laughter can do. So if I could pick up on that last point Charles made, but go back a minute to something Lee said earlier. My, my students this year, I never liked this Freud text, and I think actually is really funny unintentionally. Here's a quick example. He divides jokes between innocent and jokes with a purpose. And among jokes with a purpose are sexual jokes. And he says, okay, here's the origin of the sexual joke. I have a sexual interest in another person. And so I announce to them, see, I can't even do it straight. I announce to them my sexual intent. And now in Freud, this can only work in a heteronormative context, right? So she rebukes me. And so my dirty joke is a way of bringing in a third on my side to laugh at her and somehow that third person laughing is a release of my sexual energy. <laughs> like, I'm like, come on, this is just hilarious. <laughs> but my students have gotten me to see more of the really interesting aspects to, to Freud. And one is that there's this inextricably social dimension that comedy, and, and this is not true of all laughter, and at some point we might talk about the ways in which we laugh at things that aren't funny or have comedy involved. But for, for Freud, as for Hegel, actually also as for Aristotle and Bergson, for all of them, humor and comedy is quintessentially social. No one laughs alone, or if they do, they're remembering a social context or they're imagining a social context. And so I, I think that's an important issue. Also, by the way, Freud in this text, he has a method. What he wants to figure out is how exactly do jokes work? Like what, what's the joke part of a joke? And his method is to translate the entire content of the joke into a proposition that isn't funny. And then when you compare that with the original, you could see in the difference what it is in the original that is the joke part. So here's an example, and more the kind of joke Freud liked to tell. The mother of my wife always takes my wife's side in everything and thinks that I can do nothing right, I'm not taking care of my wife, and she treats me horribly. And after this last visit, I was really happy to take her to the airport. Okay, that's not funny, right? No. Now, what about this? I just got back from a pleasure trip. I took my mother-in-law to the airport. So now, the first one was the factual statement of the second one, and Freud then would compare and figure out, well, what's the difference and why is the second one a joke and the first one isn't a joke? By the way, it's also interesting. We know something's a joke even if we don't think it's funny or laugh at it. I love the fact that Freud created the mother-in-law joke. That's amazing. I think it's about the misdirection. 
whereas a premise or an assertion lays things out to be understood in, in a literal sense, the joke sort of sneaks behind your back and surprises you. And the surprise is what creates the laughter, right? Because it's unexpected. This is not where it's going. It's a sleight of hand. Maybe this is just a kind of natural point to talk about actual theories of comedy. I've for many years taught a course on the philosophy of film. And of course, one week of that was comedy. And so we had to look into theories of comedy, which basically break down into four major theories of humor superiority, relief, incongruity, and social play. It's not as if there hasn't been plenty of theorizing about how comedy works. Also, by the way, I just want to say that comics are artisans, are incredibly detailed and focused craftspersons. So the idea that like people are just funny and, you know, I mean, people are just funny. I mean, you guys are funny. I'm hilarious. But, you know, but, but I'm just saying, like, but, the, but there are people who just have a knack for saying the right thing at the right moment and that it's funny. But when we're talking about comedy as a craft, it is a craft. And so it has a structure. Yeah. And so what Charles was just describing kind of falls under the incongruity theory of comedy, like the unexpected, the thing that doesn't fit. We laugh at the fact that it doesn't fit or it was unexpected or whatever. But maybe we should talk about some of these theories of comedy. I'm sure, Rick, you know a lot more about this than well, what I just said. Yeah. And I, I mean, one of the reasons why I hesitate is because, as I said before, I could, well, all of you could relatively quickly take a theory like superiority. So that means that the laughter comes when I see myself as superior to another. I could find a situation in which I'm superior to another and yet I'm not laughing and no one would laugh at that, right? Mm -hmm. and, and so this is the nugget I've drawn from Freud is that if I can find a non-funny counterexample, then you have yet to explain what is the comedy there. And I think also, Lee, I would agree with you that comedy has a structure, but part of the craft of it is that there's no stable structure. And so I could say, oh, you know, the rule of threes. So comedy has that structure or set up and punchline. Comedy has that structure. And yet there are things that are funny and comedic that would have a completely different structure. But I, I think you're right. There always is a, a structure of some kind. And a big part of the craft, like, you know, Beethoven doesn't have to invent the sonata and then write one. But a lot of comics invent what comedy is and then perform it in, in really interesting ways. Really? Because I would say very few comics do that. Right. Like, and, and, right. and I think the Beethoven example is a good example. I mean, obviously, music has a structure. And there are musicians that come along very infrequently that are able to revolutionize that structure. They are so rare, but, but most of us work within the structure. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the average comedian, the, the mechanics are there. And they, to a lesser or greater degree, have an ability to insert elements into the already existing structure. I agree with Lee. I think the great comedians, the ones that we would throw off the top of our heads now, are the ones who are like, well, this is how we're going to break this mechanism. And this is how we're going to reassemble this mechanism and create something new. 
I, th I think there is already an existing way that comedy exists. And I think a lot of it is based upon how human beings are already communicating with each other in terms of the use of timing, the careful choice of particular words to elicit a very specific effect. We just don't do that in comedy. We do that with eulogies. We do that with parations. So I think comedy already has a structure of just the ways in which human beings have been communicating since, I don't know, somebody fell out of a tree and, and, and broke the arm and their friend giggled. And farted. And farted, and farted. right. <laughs> fell out of the tree, broke the arm, farted, and it was the fart that overwhelmed their friend's desire to have sympathy for them. And, and then their mother-in-law the mother passed out. All right. or, or the mother-in-law says, dumbass, I told you, you shouldn't have married him. <laughs> you shouldn't have been up in that tree. <laughs> Hey listeners, before we have too many drinks and it slips my mind, if you can't catch us at the Hotel Bar, you can catch us on Twitter at Hotel Bar Podcast. You can also follow our HBS hosts individually on Twitter to catch their off-air thoughts. You can follow Charles at at C underscore F Peterson. And Peterson is with an O, not an E. O, not an E. Rick is at at Rick Lee Philos. That's Rick Lee with two E's and Philo spelled like half of the word philosophy. And Lee is at Dr. Lee M. Johnson. The doctor's abbreviated and Lee spelled L-E-I-G-H. In the off chance that you weren't furiously scribbling notes just in, you can also visit our website at www.hotelbarpodcast.com and find everything you need to know there. Now, back to our conversation. <laughs> Rick, would you agree that comedy as a phenomenon is of a type with music as a phenomenon? So that there is structure, there are rules, but it, it allows for manipulation that can introduce innovations into the art form through the manipulation of the structural elements. But that, I guess maybe what I would say is like, no one invents a new sound, right? Like, no one invents a new note. No one reinvents mathematics. They just rearrange what's already there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I would say, along with Charles' last point, that comedy is rooted in our communication with one another, and that's why all of these theorists insert it within the social. So it's rooted in our communication, and obviously that has to be structured in certain ways. But I think one of the things that's become interesting to me is whenever, especially philosophers, because there are other theoreticians of comedy who aren't philosophers. So, you know, mm -hmm. evolutionary psychology is on this and neurobiology is on this. But I, I, I become interested whenever philosophers draw a line and say, this is comedy and that's not, right? So Freud draws a weird line where, well, this is comedy, but if a kid said it, it's just naive. And I'm mm. like, okay, what's at stake there? Like something is important for him there and he needs to draw this line. I also often wonder, and I don't mean this as denigration, but in fact, perhaps the opposite. I often wonder why through most of its history in philosophy, comedy was treated through aesthetics and then the other way in which it would be treated is through the philosophy of emotions. 
So you find it in Descartes, Spinoza, and Hobbes also, that comedy is now treated as one of the affects. That being said, then, I think a lot of them have in mind dramas that are comedic and therefore not tragic. But if we look at today, and Charles was going there before, like Chris Rock is a comic and Lucille Ball is a comic. And yet the way in which the Lucy and the Chocolate Factory, where she and Vivian Vance are getting overwhelmed by the chocolate production and they start shoving it in their mouths and, and so on, the mechanism by which that works, the structure of that is an entirely different structure than Chris Rock saying, for example, if black people made cigarettes, that shit would be illegal. So like that has a different structure and a different mechanism. And yet uh, they're all comedy or they all make us laugh or they're all working on humor in radically different ways. And so I've become less worried about finding the grand unified theory of comedy now I'm more and more worried about those who do have a theory of comedy. What's at stake for them in having that theory of comedy? So going back to Rick's point in his introduction about comedy as, I think you said, the last form or one of the few remaining forms of, of social critique, there's a part of me that completely agrees with that. And this is all about Trump, right? because power and unfunniness mixed in such a way in, in his form. But when he was elected, I just thought this person would have to be made the butt of jokes because there's something about him that you could see wanted to have a certain type of respect and command a certain type of respect from people who engage with him. And then I started thinking, isn't that common to autocratic or fascistic sort of personalities? Isn't that the one thing that autocratic regimes really need? Reverence? And the, is it because the reverence is what sort of papers over the ridiculousness or the dangerousness or the perversity of, of the regime? So laughter is the one thing that, as you said, there's no defense of it. You could send out the troops in the night to beat people, but once that joke is told, and if people hear that joke and that laughter kicks in, then you have the power to reshape and alter the image and the self-image of the autocrat. It's this amazing way to rip away the cover of power. Yeah, and something just hit me as you were talking that how frequently Trump would claim while he was campaigning that under Obama, they were laughing at us. China was laughing at us. Russia was laughing at us. And so you're right. He really did not like being laughed at. And now there's evidence coming out that he tried to use the Justice Department to shut down the impersonation of him on Saturday Night Live. Right. Um, and, and who would have thought that like Nixon would have a better sense of humor than another president? It, it's also in interesting to me, and I don't know if you all have thought about this, but the only times Trump ever even smiles, he almost never laughs. But the only times he ever smiles, it's that weird like. Right, right, right. Yeah. So obviously listeners can't see the face that Rick just made. It was it was unpleasant. <laughs> right. Have you seen someone who looked like they're about to have a stroke? Yeah. <laughs> well, or a bowel movement. I was going to say, movement. about to have a stroke while on the toilet. Eat more vegetables, Rick. Eat more vegetables. <laughs> There's been a tremendous amount of debate about armchairs psychologizing Trump. 
But many of the psychiatrists and psychologists that did do this online said that one of the key indicators of his psychological pathologies is that he never laughs. Yeah, right. Well, you know, the ability to laugh at oneself, right? I mean, whether it be in lore or whether it be in psychology, you know, that's a sign of a tremendous and healthy and confident self-conception. Yeah, and both Trump's sense of humor, to the extent that he has one, and that is something I want to get back to, is like, what is a sense of humor? But to the extent that Trump has a sense of humor, so when he laughed or when he told a joke, it was very much like, to borrow from something Rick said earlier, dissecting a frog. Right. It wasn't him actually laughing. It wasn't actually him being funny. It was just executing this program of this is how a joke goes, which if you've seen any of his rallies, that's how those jokes are. I mean, they're very canned humor. And in the instances where I actually believe that he was trying to be funny. So, for example, when he made fun of the disabled reporter and kind of contorted his body in these weird ways to imitate this disabled reporter, where it was obvious that he was trying to be funny. Right. It wasn't funny. even I mean, even really to his own crowd. Right. I wonder what is a sense of humor, and I wonder if a sense of humor is a particular ability to understand the nuances of human behavior and engagement, and that manifests itself through timing, that manifests itself in the ability to hear, to listen, comprehend, to reevaluate. I mean, all of that is happening. So this is a little bit of a sideways answer to that question, Charles. But I do think that in some cases, a sense of humor is exactly as you described. It's an ability to see the bigger picture, understand the human relationships at work, understand the historical context, also have a kind of knack for timing and delivery. I do think that that's part of it. But interestingly, I also think, so I'm thinking now back to the late 90s, early 2000s, when Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert were our kind of model examples of how humor is the left's most effective criticism of the right. And comparing the lionization of those two figures at that time to now, that humor has not aged well, right? Like, it's very easy to look back now on Colbert and Stewart and see them as really just center-left mouthpieces for a kind of neoliberal critique of fascism, right? Which is not at all progressive in the way that I think a lot of establishment left saw them as being at the time. But because they were craftsmen of the art of comedy, they did have a sense of all of those technical skills, the timing, the delivery, and they had a historical cultural sense of what was going on. And so they got elevated as like, this is what critique is now. And I think it just like that in particular hasn't aged well. Well, you know, to me, it connects back to our earliest conversation. So for saying that laughter or comedy can be used to teach, I wonder, is comedy or is laughter, is it teaching in and of itself? And I say that because, and you're right, Colbert and Stewart no longer have the center of the comedic political world. And maybe a lot of what they did 20 years ago has not aged well. And I wonder if that's because in their comedy education, they have pushed the students beyond where they were. 
And the reasons why that what they did 20 years ago does not age as well is because it was their craft which forced people to evolve past where they were at that moment. I think that's a super interesting and actually like super sympathetic reading of their comedy. <laughs> I, no, I, I mean, I love how like, sympathetic it, sounds like. Thanks for being sympathetic, Charles. It's not a criticism, <laughs> but like I do think that that's a sympathetic reading of their comedy. But it would be consistent with other media from the same era that has also not aged well for people on the left, like, for example, The West Wing, right? right. Or any kind of Sorkin send-ups of the right, which now, in retrospect, seem liberal in the sense of classically liberal, yeah, right? Yeah. Like conservative. But maybe, yeah, maybe it is the case that they were interim moments pushing the audience forward to a point where they could say, no, that kind of comedy is not enough to count as critique. I mean, think about how George W. Bush was the worst being we could conceive of in 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, right? Because of the policies, the legal war in Iraq, the economic part, the whole nine. But now compared to Trump and compared to what we've witnessed in terms of the further rightward lurch of the conservative movement, those moments seem genial, seem idyllic, right? This is like leave it to beaver conservatism compared to the Mad Max like conservatism that we have now. And I wonder if Stewart and Colbert as examples seem so liberal, right, in the classical sense of the liberal, only in comparison to what we're experiencing now in terms of this hyper aggressive and anti-democratic moment within American politics. So yeah. I think the Colbert rapport is slightly different than The Daily Show, just comedically, like how it functions and, and so on. Because Colbert is a character? Well, that's the difference, but, but I wanted to pick up on okay. the last few things that were said. I think one of the reasons why the Colbert rapport and Stewart don't age so well, there's an obvious reason, and that is because they're specifically speaking to today's news often. But I think for me, more seriously, the the reason why they don't age well is because and here again Stuart I I think in particular their laughter is always laughing at and mm. I, I think it's the same with Trump like Trump's jokes are always only laughing at someone and I think the reason why his audiences were laughing so uproariously is because rightfully or wrongfully they understood that we, the liberal elite in, in their minds, have been laughing at them for years. And, and so now, finally, they have someone who will tell jokes at my expense and they can start laughing and I don't find him funny. But, well, I mean, first of all, I think he's a bad joke teller. But I think it's this laughing at that kind of brings in a little bit too much of the structure of argument into comedy. And I, I think that's never going to hold up as well as comedy, as something that doesn't engage the kind of pro-con argument. I'm so excited by this, this interpretation because it makes sense of this whole other phenomenon that has happened. If you're right, that the frustration on the right with the left from the 90s through the first decade of the 2000s was that the elite coastal liberal intellectual left was laughing at the right. It is very interesting that what we see now is the reaction has been for the right 
to suddenly adopt this quasi-intellectual self-identity, mm. which is like, but you guys haven't done your, you sheeple haven't done your research. You guys don't actually understand that there is this huge cabal of blood-drinking pedophiles that are running the government and the deep state is actually feeding you, you know. And so, ha, 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 you people who thought you were smart, we can laugh at you now, but we're laughing at you from the same position of intellectual superiority that we resented being laughed at before. Okay, can I maybe replace the superiority because often Hegel okay. is is lumped in with the superiority crowd, but Hegel's argument is, I think, importantly different. And that is Hegel, and I, I said I don't like when comedy and tragedy are brought together, and Hegel does it, but he says that what both of them are doing is they are dramatizing the conflict between, well, he says ethical substance, let's say social norms and, and values, the conflict between social norms and values and individual and their sense of freedom. And that conflict is resolved in tragedy in favor of the norms and values of society, often through the death of the, the individual, a kind of resolution. But in comedy, it's resolved because the comic persona, he says, rises above the tension and laughter is a sign of that, but there is no bitterness, anger, or negativity on the part of the comic persona. They rise above in what he calls serene blessedness. And so that's not quite the same as superiority. That's a bit more of, if I play this game with you, I lose or we both lose. So I'm not gonna play the game. And then the genius is, how do I get out of playing the game. And Hegel then, listen to this, people, Hegel then says that the comic is the master of the phenomenal presence of the real. That is, the comic is a master of the way in which reality appears. And this turns for him on the fact that false appearances also form a part of reality. So there, I think, he points out a way in which there can be a, a use of comedy that is social critique, that the moment it's a laughing at, to that extent, it's less comedy and actually more tragic. Once every episode, as a public service to hotel bar sessions, regular listeners, your HBS hosts offer a quick-fire segment of random facts that you can use to spice up your future cocktail party conversations. Today's random fact is, quantum physics helps us to understand that a sun made of bananas would be just as hot. Don't at me. A random fact, the philosopher Anne Conway wrote her major work, Principles of the Most Ancient and Modern Philosophy, mostly in her bed, over her head, and with a pencil due to illness. Here's a random fact. In an attempt to get kids to eat healthier, McDonald's once made bubblegum-flavored broccoli. It didn't go over well with the child testers who were confused by the taste.
One of the things I've become interested in after <laughs> announcing the failure of every theory of comedy, one of the things I've become... <laughs> where's, it, like, where's our sad trumpet? Right. right. Look at that wet rag come in and... <laughs> You're all wrong. One of the things I've become interested in after announcing that nothing is fucking funny... <laughs> <laughs> is I how, don't even know why you're listening to this whole damn thing. Well, I'm only doing it because I was promised Sam Adams. <laughs> <laughs> Sam Adams, call us. Right. So if we give up a, a theory of comedy, we could take a different tack, which is Bergson's, and let's start with laughter and try to figure out what laughter is doing and what contexts there are in which we laugh and then see if we can work our way from there to maybe a larger theory of laughter and the social function of laughter, and then locate various forms like caricature and comedy and, and so on within laughter. And that's an interesting way to go because one of you mentioned this, I think it was Charles, that if I'm looking out the window and my neighbor's walking down the street and they trip, one response I might have is I laugh. Or, you know, my therapist used to, who thought we made a breakthrough the moment he said, you know what, you're no longer laughing while you say some really horrific things. And, you know, so th there's a laughter there. We sometimes call it nervous laughter and, and so on. And, and then there, or, or Bergson also points out that, like, children laugh at peekaboo, which as an adult, well, Charles, you have human children. Like, that is not only not funny. As opposed to the other type of children. Sorry? <laughs> <laughs> books. Books. <laughs> it's funny because it's true. Just for the record, books and children are synonyms. <laughs> if you've only joined us for this episode, exactly. Lee, Lee thinks that books and children are basically the same thing. <laughs> it's the cataracts. It's the cataracts. She can't, she can't distinguish the two. Yeah, wait till I get my bionic eyes and then I'm going to lay some real truth down on you but, but can i just say something about laughter which is that the people that i feel the closest to in my life are people who make me laugh and For it's sure. one of the things that it's one of my like top three things that i'm attracted to in a partner or a friend or a colleague or a coworker or anything is that they make me laugh and, and I think that there is something really deep and emotional that I can't quite put my finger on that connects me to people who are capable of surprising me. Because this is what happens when I laugh, is that, you know, not laugh like I'm laughing on purpose or like I know you just told a funny joke, so I'm laughing. Right. Or I know this is funny, so I'm laughing. But like when laughter happens to me, when I'm overcome with laughter, yeah. there's some deep connection that I feel to people who are able to draw that out of me. And, you know, my partner, Cassandra, this is one of the things I tell her all the time. I feel like I know a ton of hilarious people. And I feel really fortunate to have a ton of friends, all of whom are hilarious. As a matter of fact, most of the people that I consider dear friends are hilarious people. But Cassandra, because she's very different from me, and she's not a philosopher, she's an artist, 
is able to make me laugh in ways that all of my philosopher friends and my academic friends and my musician friends are not able to make me laugh. It's just like genuinely surprising laugh. Right. And it is a bonding moment with someone to mm -hmm. laugh with them. Mm -hmm. So this is something that I've been trying to reclaim in philosophers thinking about comedy and laughter. Let's not forget that it is also really pleasurable. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. not just an intellectual pleasure, he says, pointing at his brain. Um, it's not just an intellectual pleasure, but it's like a whole body pleasure. And right. I, totally I think is. there is something really, there is something really intimate in someone able to give me pleasure or provide the occasion for my pleasure. Yeah. I think it's no wonder that, you know, we say, oh, laughter is a pleasure and I self-pleasure myself. Well, that's redundant. <laughs> like, the, 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 <laughs> Freud is not entirely wrong. It's not about sexuality, I would say, but it is about pleasure. And the, Freud is wrong because he thinks there's a limited libidinal economy of pleasure, right? And so I only have so much and I'm repressing the expression of some of it. And so laughter is a way for me to get some of the pleasure because I have a pleasure deficit. But I think you're right, Lee. I, I think this intimacy I want to reclaim as coming from the ability to give pleasure. I really love that idea. You know, I'm a doctor, but I'm not that type of doctor. So I can't explain to you the physiological processes of laughter, and I don't know exactly what it does, but I would imagine well, that it... Well, it... it takes more muscles to frown than to smile. <laughs> okay. I read that on the, I read that on the interwebs, Oh, my God. Charles. It feels like a Kathy comic. <laughs> oh, you want to talk about something not funny? Kathy. <laughs> oh my God. Now we're going to get sued by like the right of Kathy for defamation. Um, or sponsored Kathy Collins. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, first call Sam Adams, then call us. <laughs> I want to pour Sam Adams summer ale into a Kathy coffee mug. <laughs> but, but I would imagine... I would imagine that the act of laughing drives endorphins. And oh, so yeah. if you're talking Definitely. about the, and this is me sucking all the, the fun out of what both of you just said, but if you're talking about the community and the attraction to people that make you laugh, because I'm like you, yeah, I think most of my friends make me laugh a great deal. That's like the rat that gets exposed to cocaine in the maze. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's always mm -hmm. like going back for more and more and more. So I think the laughter becomes addict because we're becoming addicted to the endorphins, right? that we now associate with these people because they actually are able to drive them because they they create this response in us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay? But I also think for me, certainly the physiological and the emotional benefits of laughter, for me, I think humor is the highest level of, of intellectual engagement. I think the ability to make someone laugh is not that easy because you actually have to figure out and unlock their consciousness and their thought process in a particular way, which is why I think certain types of comedians appeal to certain types of people. I think very few comedians appeal to everyone, right? Because not everyone thinks the same way. You know, and I've said this, and you know, actors don't at me. I think it's far easier to play a dramatic role, you know, because you know, someone dying of mm -hmm. cancer, that's inherently sad, right? You don't really have to work that hard. But to make someone laugh, you've got to figure out how to puncture right into their intellectual mechanism. That's hard. As anyone who's tried to tell a joke in front of a group of people will tell you, that's an extremely difficult thing versus weep for me because I am in pain. One of the things that can really connect people through laughter 
it's not just when, for example, my friends or people that I love or people that I feel connected to can make me laugh because they've said something funny or because they've, as Hegel said, the master of the phenomenal presence of the real in my presence. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, but also, I think when I can laugh at myself being the butt of the joke. Yeah. Right. 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 Like, you know, I mean, I think that this is actually the real measure of a friend is the friend who can make you the butt of the joke and also you laugh. And you laugh because, you know, it hurts because it's true, right? Like it's it's funny because it's true. Whereas if anyone else in the universe said the same thing, you would be hurt or you would be offended or they'd catch those hands. That's the difference is that I think that there is a a real connection that is that is established in being able to laugh together and being able to share laughter. It's not being able to laugh at the same thing. It's being able to share laughter. Right. Well, there's a tremendous intimacy. Exactly. Because yeah. your, your friend saying something, making you the butt of the joke, the intimacy is that the person says it out of care because they've already proven their friendship, but you trust them to make that yeah. joke with good intention and with good faith and not out of mean-spiritedness. I mean, that's the difference between my friends razzing me, let's say, call that, versus like insult comedy, which only turns on stereotypes precisely because there's no intimacy. You know, and we think about the social function of laughter and comedy. I think about, and I'm not a sociologist, but I think about the ways in which certainly growing up, my friends and I use comedy and laughter and playing the dozens and how we use that as a way by which to designate ourselves as a group of people to show to some degree competitiveness within our group, but also to show care and concern. Like our friends, my friends and I, you know, really starting from like third grade to this very day, we get together and somebody's fucking with somebody else. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And we're yeah. and the competition and we're one upping each other and it's going back and forth and it's getting out of hand. But that's an amazing display of the trust and faith that we have in each other and the comfort and security because nobody gets mad. Right. right. And it's all known to be understood to be uh, in good humor. We've all been working around this in different ways. The opposite of funny is not serious. The opposite of funny is sad. So you can be funny and serious at the same time. People stop saying, oh, I'm not serious. I was just being funny. No, you can be funny and serious at the same time. Just don't be sad. Also, there's enough pleasure to go around. What was my <laughs> joy quote? Drink from the cup of joy. Right. There's so much joy left. That's right. I'm not going to knock you away from the bar at last call for joy. Because <laughs> I think if I get mine, you won't get yours. Right. So I wonder, thinking about laughter and... Laughter becomes an indicator of the recognition of someone else's humanity, right? And not just personality or character, but their actual homo sapien, this differentiates you from other forms being. Yeah. Right? Because, I don't know, I'm not a primatologist, but do primates outside of us laugh? I think the problem here is that we don't share language with them, right? right? So we so, can't, yeah. So, like, what might be laughter in their languages we don't understand, but I think there's a lot of animal studies that seem to indicate that humor exists in the animal world. I will also say that about 
five years ago or so, I was at a Cristeva concert. Concert. <laughs> I was not at a Christ- concert. Wow, she was, that's really. I was at- <laughs> Julia Kristeva only covers Prince. Oh my god. Purple rain. Purple rain. See, you don't see a chimpanzee doing that. <laughs> Good line from a fish called Wando when she calls him a chimpanzee and he says, Do chimpanzees read Nietzsche? And she says, Yes, they just don't understand it. Like you. <laughs> That's right, Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> okay, okay, you guys. I was at a Chris David conference, not a concert, <laughs> and someone was giving a paper who actually works in humor studies. Apparently, this is a thing. They have conferences every year on humor studies. But anyway, this person was giving a paper on AI bots, basically, that are being programmed to be funny. Some of the arguments surrounding all of this is like all of their humor is algorithmic, Mm. basically. But the problem is that they actually have figured out ways of capturing that category of comedy that is like the unexpected. So the category of comedy that you get when you, for example, ask a six-year-old to tell you a joke and they're like, knock, knock, who's there? And they're like... But but the popsicle wasn't even frozen, <laughs> you know, like, you know, where it's just like it doesn't make any sense at all. And it's, of course, hilarious because a six year old said that. So the algorithms have also figured that out, which is algorithmic, obviously, but also a kind of algorithmic capturing of spontaneity and unexpectedness and humor. So, I mean. I think the question, do animals enjoy comedy in the animal kingdom, is also an interesting question to ask about machines. Yeah, and again, I would just say that I'm interested in who's drawing a line and why they want to draw that line. No, no, that's that's true. I think there's something about humor that's understood to be so deeply connected to our consciousness that people are compelled to try and figure out what it is. Because it feels like if you can understand that, you're going to unlock something really, really substantial about understanding human personality. All right, you guys, this has been hilarious. I'm so glad that I finally got to talk about comedy and laughter with two of the funniest people I know. Unfortunately, Frangelica has given us last call for today, and we have to get out of here. So, Charles, you're in the hot seat for the next episode. Why don't you give us a preview of what we're going to talk about? We're going to be talking about vulgarity. We're going to get down and dirty shit. That's right. We're going to blow this motherfucker up. (laughs) We're going to think about what are the limits? What are the social functions? Is it a good thing? Can truth be determined through vulgarity? Who determines what's vulgar? And how can vulgarity be useful to the way in which we function within this motherfucking society? So it will be a not safe for work episode. However, we know that you will all enjoy it. And I'm very much looking forward to that conversation. So Charles, Rick, thanks again for this conversation. And I will catch you both next time. Peace out. Bye.